Hello, this is the Idea to Startup Podcast, and I'm Brian Scordato. Today's episode is brought to you by Tacklebox. If it's time and you want to give your startup idea a shot, the next virtual cohort of Tacklebox Accelerator starts June 15th. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Today, we've got an awesome episode. Jennifer Goggin, who's founded multiple startups in the food space, including Farmer's Web and Pippin Foods, and who now runs Startle, one of the coolest companies I've heard of in a while. Stop by. Startle is a tech transformation studio that partners with researchers in the food tech space to bridge the gap between research and building impactful companies. We get into what that is and how that works, what Jen looks for in super early stage companies, what she learned from building her previous startups and exiting Pippin Foods, and tons more. It's a really fun conversation with an incredibly smart and tactical founder. One of those conversations where you probably need a pen and pad handy. I hope you're all staying safe and I hope you enjoy. Jen, welcome to Idea to Startup. Thank you very much. So I think the best place to start is just to hear about what you're up to now. So maybe tell us a little bit more about Startle. Sure. So our mission is, like you said, to turn cutting edge research and science into real world ventures that can solve some of the challenges that are facing the food system. And we look we look at the food system at large. So anything from the supply chain, where food is grown, how it's produced, how it's then tra- transferred and distributed all the way to the consumer side, where we look at how people eat, how they decide what to eat, what's good for their bodies and food for health as well. Um, So we've been working on what we're calling phase one for the past year or so, which has been setting up the company processes and the fundamentals. Uh, We've been diving deep into some of the specific opportunity areas that we find really interesting within the industry and building relationships with labs and universities that are developing um, all this really cool research and technology. So now we're building out our pipeline so we can move to phase two where we actually start developing initiatives based on the most compelling IP that we've found. Amazing. That is so, so interesting. Um, and I've got a bunch of questions on that, digging in on that, that we'll get to. But I think a good place to now jump to after hearing about what you're up to now is is about how you got to this place. So like what you do, I think if I were to describe it to a friend, sounds like just about the coolest job there is. And you've definitely earned the right to have this job. So I wanted to talk about, before we get into details of Startle, and we definitely will, I want to hear about how you got here. So I mentioned in the intro that you've started a couple of companies. I'm interested in hearing that journey, like how you got to this spot. So maybe starting with some of the companies you started, maybe Farmer's Web, Pip and Foods, those sorts of things or anything relevant and sort of catch us up with how you got to this point. Yeah, sure. So I, my first job in the food industry actually was decidedly not tech focused. It was um, mm. at a local food distributor where I ran the operations. So I was running a warehouse and a fleet of trucks and organizing deliveries from regional farms into wholesale buyers in the city. And out of that experience came this idea that technology and at that point software in particular could really help move this industry forward, make it more efficient, make it more feasible to be adopted on a larger scale. So the first company that I started after that was Farmers Web, which started out as an online marketplace for farms and chefs at the beginning to connect. And then it kind of morphed into more of a software as a service product for farmers to manage all of their wholesale orders. Hmm. And that I had two co-founders. I ran it for about five years with them and then left that to start my second company, which was called Pippin Foods. And that was also a software 
platform that was more about bringing traceability and transparency to the local food system and um, you know helping with some storytelling and marketing around those products to again to encourage increased sales of local food in particular mm. and then after so that was acquired pretty early on in its life cycle and I joined the acquiring company to help integrate that product into their company and then once that was pretty well established and, and running independently of me, then I left to start Startle. And it, what's been really interesting is that this, so so at Startle, we focus on what I call deep science and technology, whereas before what I was building was more digital products, but it's still the same process that I've done before, which is basically turning something from an idea into a business. So it's actually a really great combination of being able to use my experience and things that I've done over and over again, but I personally feel like I'm learning something new every time we dive into a new piece of science because I'm because I'm not the scientist, right? So I have to understand mm. the underlying science and technology behind it and then figure out how to apply it to the industry. Super cool. And I'm going to have to scrap my next question because you talked about <laughs> process from idea to startup. And that is uh, the name of the show. And that is the exciting thing that I always want to think about. So what are some of the things that you're looking for? What are the things that you learned from Farmers Web and Pittman Foods about, I guess, maybe like evaluating an idea and deciding whether it's worthy of the attempt about like the, the massive amount of work that goes into building a product? Um, how do you validate those ideas early? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's pretty basic, right? So it's, you've, it's got to be, first of all, you have to understand the problem that you're solving for and, and who the customer is and what their needs are. Um, and then what you're looking at, it needs to be better than the other solutions on the market. Mm. And for us in particular, when we're working with something very early stage, we do need it to be proven to some extent. So at least proven within the lab setting with a pathway towards scaling up. It's okay if it's not scaled up yet, or obviously it might not even be a product yet. It could just be the, the kernel of something that is then turned into a product. And that's that's kind of what we do. And it has to be protectable. So for us, it's really important that this is, what we work with is something patentable or some proprietary formula or process that we can use. We don't really do brand-driven products because that's just not our... I guess, area of expertise. And I think there are a lot of people doing that. And so that's, you know, that's one of the broader things too, when you're evaluating an idea, are you the right person to do it? And does it match what it needs to become a business? Does that match what your skill set is and what you could bring to the, the product? Um, and yeah. then kind of on a more macro level, is the idea or is the product something that fits into the vision of what or how does it fit into how you want to see the world? So at Startle, we're mm. a you know we're a for-profit company, but we have a very strong social mission of solving challenges or, or making the food system better in some way. So whether that's more efficient, more mm. sustainable, healthier. So we might come across something that's really compelling and it works and it's proven, but maybe it's a pesticide that's like a hundred times more effective than the other pesticide, and that's just not mm. something that we necessarily would want to work on. Very cool. Yeah, we we interviewed the founder of Luke's Lobster, and he sort of talked a lot about that, about trying to balance. They have a very strong underlying mission. They actually are a B Corp now, hmm. um, the transition to one, and talking about like the balance between sustainability and like having plastic forks in the in their restaurants and those sorts of things, and like figuring out how to balance the two, the mission and the and recognizing that the margins are going to be slim. It, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's also something to be said for for not being, I mean, we like to talk about radical change and radical solutions, and that's very important. But 
but also you don't want to be so, I don't know what the right word is. You don't want to be so dogmatic about things that you, you don't do things in increments. And so if there is something that's better than what's out there now, but not the ideal solution, that's okay to start working on that and kind of get to the end mm. result in steps. Definitely. So stepping back just for a second, we have a lot of people listening to the podcast who have ideas and are trying to decide whether to build these companies or not. And we actually have a lot of people who have gone through Tacklebox with a sentiment that that I saw you quoted as saying in, I forget exactly where I saw it, some interview that I was reading with you where it said, um, where you said the food and agriculture industry have not evolved as quickly as other sectors, such as transportation, medicine, and media. Mm-hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs that we've met have had a similar take on various industries, whether it's like construction or some of the other like truck-driven transportation, that sort of thing. How did you go about at Farmers Web in particular, working with people who had a very antiquated process in terms of supply chain and introducing technology that maybe was foreign to them. It's an, that's an interesting way to phrase it. So with Farmers Web in particular and Pippin actually both, because they were digital products, they actually didn't fall into that view of agriculture as being a difficult industry to innovate in. Because I think what makes mm. agriculture in particular difficult is the fact that anything that has to do with growing or harvesting or storing, anything like that is is seasonally dependent, right? So you you do something for a season, you have to wait to see what the results are and gather the data. And then you want to try again and, and iterate on something, you've got to wait until the next season. So there's just a very long mm. development cycle there. But that doesn't mean that farmers and growers are just slow in general to adopt new technology if it doesn't interfere with that crop growing cycle. Um, so for mm. us, we were offering a different sales channel, um, different way to, to sell their products. And that is something that has a very clear and immediate ROI. And there's no real no real risk to the farmer to try it out and see what happens. Um, so we didn't actually have that adoption problem there. So I think it depends on what, what piece of the food and agriculture industry you're working on. But there is, of mm-hmm. course, the, the problem of, and maybe this is also true, true of construction, I'm not sure, but there are a lot of industries out there that are just low margin industries. And so it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. I think all of those industries is hard to bring new products out because you have to be able to really show a clear and definitive return on investment to get people in that industry to adopt your new, your new product. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It's sort of like making sure that you're working within the existing system and not changing too much, not creating too much cognitive overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, solving a problem they're very aware of with an ROI that they are driven by. Exactly. Very cool. So one last question on on some of the early uh, companies that you worked on before moving into the startle stuff. I'm an essentialist. I believe that 99% of everything we do kind of cancels, them, can't, it all cancels itself out. And that 1% of what people do drives the majority of the value. What are some of the things that you did at, at either Farmer's Web or Pippin that drove enormous outsized value? We did a lot of things that didn't scale at the beginning. And so this clearly did not drive value in terms of revenue at all. And in fact, there are probably money losing ways of going about things, but it gave us a lot of valuable insights that that then helped us build a better business or, or better product. So one you know, pretty simple example is one of our first customers at Farmer's Web that uh, buyers at, at Farmer's Web that said that they want to use a platform to buy their local food was located in Westchester. And we had only signed up farms that were delivering to New York City. So I ended up picking up cases of eggs from a farmer at a drop point in Manhattan (laughs) and driving them out to Westchester, I think two times a week in the morning. Um, You know, and obviously me driving, spending 
three and a half hours in rush hour traffic to deliver two cases of eggs was not scalable and didn't make sense from a money perspective. But because I was able to actually be part of that process and basically function as a farmer, what we were asking a farmer to do who was delivering products from orders that they received on our platform, it made me understand how it all actually worked in actuality and where we could improve the process from a software standpoint and how we could better tie into those customers' operations. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that was really, although annoying at the time, actually quite invaluable to set everything up. How steep was the learning curve for learning the supply chain for this industry? It's pretty steep, but like I said, my first job was doing that. And so I learned, Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to learn on, on the job at that first company, very deep in the weeds, you know, I, I was actually coming from a finance background, so it was a drastic change between working with hedge funds and financial modeling and then going to talking to the, the drivers and organizing routes on Google Maps. And it was also very, at that time, it was all very hands-on too. So like our product list that would come in from the farms were on faxes or emails, and there was no software to, to guide it, which again, was kind of great because I got to learn every single little piece of it and how it all worked. So is that something that you would recommend founders do? Um, sort of figure out how to get their hands dirty as much as possible in an industry that they're looking to build something in? Yes, 100%. I think it's easier to solve. To, well, it's it's easier to recognize the problem, first of all, when it's your problem. You know, I think people solve mm. their problems in a smarter way than solving kind of an, a problem that's somebody else's that they don't have direct experience with. I think this gives you a, a deeper appreciation for what's what the, the real challenges are. And then you can be more creative about what the real solutions are to to fix those. Yeah, I think we tend to get a lot of founders who come in and they've they've sort of they're, they're almost opportunistic where they think that they see something in a market that they're not totally familiar with, but they see a gap or they think that some some technology has been applied in an adjacent market and they think it'll work um, in this market that they've identified. And they sort of just jump in and build a product and that tends not to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of what you're saying is that while it may look initially a little bit slower, getting your hands dirty, learning the industry, making sure that the problem is your problem before building any sort of scalable solution to it might be shorter in the long run. Right, exactly. So you'll you'll start, it'll take you longer to start, but once you start, I think you'll be on a better, faster path than you would have been otherwise. Very cool. Yeah, I was talking with a founder the other day who has a... Um, logistics food startup, mm-hmm. um, which we can talk about offline. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm supposed to talk about it um, <laughs> on the podcast, but but it was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, so what are you doing? He said uh, he was working at a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, well, how did you make this jump? And he was like, well, I worked at McDonald's for a year and then I worked at Starbucks for a year. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just such like an interesting approach from making a whole bunch of money to making literally minimum wage at those two jobs just to understand how they actually worked. Yeah. I thought that was pretty, pretty cool and gives you a unique perspective. Yeah, definitely. And actually, it's that's funny because when I so when I left the bank that I was working at, I left there thinking I was going to start a company in logistics. I thought I was going to start mm-hmm. a local food distributor with my own trucks and everything. And during that process of exploration and starting to learn the industry and volunteering for food organizations, I met this other company that was doing exactly that, that I would have not known about had I just jumped right in and started my own thing. So I think just it just also opens your eyes to who, who else is out there who's working on these similar problems, who you could collaborate with instead of just doing things in, in parallel and separate. Yeah, it's always the like, all babies are cute and everything looks good until you really get to know them. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I like last question on that, I promise. 
you mentioned that you came in with a different idea. What did you learn or, or like what problem did you identify? What sort of sparked where you were like, oh, I need to build a solution to this? How, how did that come about? Like, how do you know you're on to the right idea? I think in that exact situation where you said you were going to, you were thinking about building this logistics business, you found someone was doing something similar. Mm-hmm. And so clearly you pivoted away from that. Um, what did you see that you were like, oh, this is the thing that I, this is the problem I need to solve. And I guess more broadly, like what should that, or what could that look like? Yeah. Well, in that, that particular case, I mean, basically what happened was I found this company that was doing exactly what I thought I was going to start on my own. And because at that point I was 24, I'd never started a company Mm -hmm. before. I had no resources. I had no background in the industry. I was probably not the right person to start that company at the time. And so (laughs) when I found this other company that was basically solving the problem that I wanted to solve, I decided to work with them instead of doing it on my own. Um, So it actually, that wasn't so much a pivot as, well, it wasn't a pivot of the idea or the solution, but rather the way in which I was going to help solve the problem. Um, In general though, so I have, you know, obviously I've had a lot of different ideas. I have started some companies, some I've had ideas that don't go anywhere. I've talked to a lot of other founders about their ideas. And what I've noticed that's very interesting, and I'm not going to disclose which of my ideas fall into different (laughs) categories here, but there are some things you talk about with people where you can see them light up and grasp it and get really excited about it, even if they're not in the industry necessarily. (laughs) And those are the ones, it has not happened that often, but those are the ones when I see that happen in the other person's space, those are the ideas that are successful. And when I have an idea and I talk to somebody and they're, they're polite and they'll ask questions and we talk about it, but you don't get that same visceral feeling of like, oh, this is, this is exciting. They understand this. This is getting them excited about it. Those ideas really haven't gone anywhere. Yeah. So that's just, and it's, it's a very intangible, hard to describe thing, but I feel like you know it when it happens. And so to other found, potential founders, thinking about ideas, I would encourage them to talk to people about it and see if they can feel that moment. And I think that will kind of give one indication of whether or not they're on the right track. I think one of the things that goes along with that is speaking with people about your idea who aren't familiar with the problem you're solving forces you to put it in really simple terms. Yes. And if you if you can't do that, then no one's going to get excited about it because they're not going to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Especially um, if you're doing something that is not consumer facing necessarily. So when I think about things, mm-hmm. you know, on the supply chain or anything B2B, I, and I'm talking to my friends about it who aren't in the industry at all, I have to change the way that I talk about it to make it clear to them. And that does help clarify thinking as well on my end. I think that's actually a good transition to talk about Startle because I remember when you told me about Startle the first time and I got really excited about it. I was like, this is so freaking cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that kind of passes that test, I guess. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so, when, so when I think about Startle, I immediately am almost overwhelmed with like questions and thoughts about how to execute on this. So from a high level, you're looking for technical innovation and your goal, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to take that innovation and hopefully it's defensible as you act, as as you mentioned you can you can patent it or whatever and then spin it into a product that you help build and own a big chunk of equity in correct mm-hmm. that's right am I close yep cool so what are you just like high level and then we'll dig in deeper what are you looking for in a technical innovation like what are you are do you have problems in mind that you want solved or are you just looking for interesting things or how does that happen? Um, we have problems in mind that we want solved, but we're not too narrow about it. So we mm-hmm. have come up with four different what we're calling focus areas. Um, and then within those, we've done a lot of 
internal thinking and brainstorming and, and ideating on what the opportunities are within those areas, where the challenges might be, who are the players in that space? What do we think about, you know, basically what do we think about this area in general? And so mm-hmm. that then lets us go out and when we start scouring publications and, and patents and research that's out there, we can start relating those two areas that we've looked at. And so we might look at something and, and also, you know, it could be the technology could be completely unrelated to how the creator, the researcher originally envisioned it. Mm-hmm. We might want to apply that somewhere else in the in the food and ag system. So it's kind of both, right? Like we, we do come with problems. We're not just saying, all right, let's just find something cool and then figure out where it goes in the world, because I think you always do have to start with the problem that you want to solve. But we have, mm-hmm. you know, like hundreds of problems that we could solve. And mm. so we can be pretty creative about how or where something might fit within that spectrum that we come across. Very cool. Can you give me an example of a problem that you guys are looking to solve and then potentially an example of what technology would look like? I'm just trying to get grounded in like what the technology could be, like just an, just kind of an example of it. Yeah. So <laughs> this is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, one, of, nice. one of our examples is, or one of our areas is personalized nutrition. Um, we think that's going to be a huge yeah. area over the next couple of years. There's a lot there. I think it's fascinating. We all know that there's no one size fits all diet. And we also know that what we eat is a large part um, of, it it goes a long way towards determining how healthy we are. So it's really important to get it right. But it's so complicated. And there are so many factors involved with what and when we're eating, what nutrients we're absorbing from those foods, what our bodies need more of. And like I said, everyone's different. And the things that go into that are genetics, there's body chemistry and hormones, there's our gut microbiome, there's, and then there's psychology and the environment that we live in, the air we breathe. So there's so many different factors and people absorb things differently, right? So you can't even really say, okay, you have a a deficiency in this nutrient, so you should eat more X because maybe your body isn't absorbing it properly from that particular food. Hmm. And these factors are all changing day to day too. So like there's, you know, there are kids <laughs> out there that look at your genetic makeup and give you a diet based on what your genes are saying you should eat. But that actually isn't all that helpful in isolation because I there's those other factors are gonna influence me every hour or, you know, every day, every week. So mm-hmm. that's a huge challenge. To get to be able to solve that, you need to be able to collect the data on your body and what's going on at the moment. So there are things like um, continuous glucose monitors that are out there that can, so mostly diabetics use it, but people start to use it just for their general wellness too. There are these different um, biomeasuring tools, but they're all kind of siloed. They're all pretty manual. It's not necessarily an automatic process. And so something that I've been talking about for like a year is the idea of a smart toilet that essentially Mm -hmm. every day tells you what your body needs at the moment and how things are looking. And it's funny, the timing of this, because Stanford actually just came out with, I don't know if they they published a paper or not, I'm not sure, but a couple of days ago announced that they have created a smart toilet that analyzes your daily output and basically tells you if you have markers, from what I understand, I think they're looking for markers of certain diseases. So like cancer, for example, Mm -hmm. that you might be um, at risk for. So that, that the idea of a smart toilet for me is just like the perfect encapsulation of all this because it is automatic. It can fit right into somebody's routine, doesn't change any consumer behavior whatsoever, but it collects the data that you need theoretically. I mean, the, what they have done is just one piece of it. I would like to see more of like, they're, they're, I think they're looking very long-term. There's also some short-term applications there as well, but then you take that data and say, all right, here are some actionable things that you 
Brian should do today to make to get your energy levels up or to make you feel better or whatever. Um, so that's kind of an example of, of one big area we're looking at to one very specific technology that could fit into that area. So, so interesting. When I was at Johnson Johnson in the venture capital group, that was one of the things that we were looking at. And that was always kind of the holy grail of continuous feedback loop for actual health, mm-hmm. like actual transparency into what how people are feeling. So so on that, I think this is a great example and like so fascinating. I, I interviewed um, Christoph Birch maybe two weeks ago. He started a company called Veho, which is this super interesting company that is like personalized nutrition. It's sort of like they, they create personalized pods for you huh. that then go into, it looks like a little... It almost looks like a swell bottle that's actually like a Keurig. Mm -hmm. So you put these freeze-dried ingredients, fruits and vegetables and things, and then it sort of makes you a little personalized shake. And a lot of athletes are really into it it because it's supposed to be for peak performance. So what what my question is, the long-winded way of getting to it, so you're looking at this and and are you looking for, will you go as deep to say like, okay, there are clear customer segments within the personalized nutrition space that have clear problems that we can solve with like one facet of this technology and we'll go for it. So sort of like Stanford's looking to solve cancer and I would imagine like a specific type of cancer. Would you say like, let's grab this customer segment that has a clear need that would be an early adopter and be willing to put these in their house or you just focused on the tech and like, let's build it and then we'll figure customer segment and all that out after. I feel like my partner who is the venture design guy would have a better answer for this, but I, mm. I feel like we would want to know who we're designing for. So we would, we would also start with a specific audience and a specific need, and then it could expand out from there for sure. But it's, I mean, especially with foods, everybody is a potential user, eater, consumer, everybody has mm-hmm. nutrient needs, obviously. And so it's, it's near impossible to design something that will work for just the whole world. It's a lot easier, I think, and more efficient to, to narrow down your focus at the very beginning, even for us. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. Because like you said, your TAM is sort of infinite. Mm-hmm. But so are the so are like the little problems that you could solve. Right. Um, you, you happen to pick one that I'm kind of obsessed with right now. So I'm in the midst of I've been eating vegetarian for two months and I've got the Fitbit, which tracks my heart rate and my, my resting heart rate has decreased with almost, but it, again, it's your point. It's tough to tell the other variables right. that may be impacting that, but the resting heart rate has gone down since I started eating vegetarian. It's a really interesting stuff. We got a little sidetracked there, but that's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so you have a lot of problems similar to personalized nutrition and you're out there looking for tech. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Are there like industry, like news? Are there are you, are you reading literally reading like scientific um, reports and things like that, or do you have relationships, or how's that work? Yeah, both. So there are a lot of scientific journals out there. We have a lot, you know, we get a lot of newsletters. We just do a lot of reading in general. And what's been happening is when we come across something that we find interesting, we'll reach out to that the lead researcher or the lab to talk about that particular piece of IP. But almost without fail, if I'm remembering all of our conversations correctly, those then turn into wider conversations and relationships for other technologies too. So maybe the thing that we reached out to to the researcher about is not actually right for us for various reasons. Maybe they already have an industry partner that's working on it with them. But more often than not, they're also working on you know five or ten other technologies in their lab too in the same area, but just different a different piece of it. And so we start talking about that. And then it becomes a really nice kind of informal 
back and forth relationship where they're going to keep us up to date on what they're working on. And we can also help them with some market insights or, you know, this would be really cool if you could look into this because there's a lot of interest in this area. So it can, it can really be either of those paths, either we've got just the idea comes from a relationship, they come to us about what they're working on, or we seek them out because we read about something specific in a, in a journal, for example. And then logistically, let's say that everything goes well and this is this is a technology you want to be involved in and solving a real problem that you're focused on what happens next it depends on what they're looking for too so there are some people that really just want to keep running their lab they're maybe they're a faculty member somewhere they're they're happy in academia and they are just looking to license the technology so in that case startle Mm -hmm. would just license it and we would basically become the owner of that ip and then we would turn it into a venture internally in those cases, we'd also hmm. probably bring in an outside entrepreneur to, to essentially act as the CEO of that company, that, that new venture. So when we spin it out, they, they continue to go on with that venture and run it independently. Hmm. Um, there have been other conversations where there, you know, there's a PhD student that's been working on the project that's really, that has entrepreneurial aspirations and is really interested in running a venture. And so in that case, we might do it like a joint venture model where Startle is the business co-founder and they are the scientific co-founder, and then they step into the CEO role and we kind of help guide them there. Wow. Fascinating. How did you land on this model for Startle? The model of what we're building hasn't really changed in the beginning, but the you know the, the financial model and the structure really did. And it basically, it changed because of a lot of conversation, conversations that we had early on with potential collaborators, potential investors, um, potential partners in it, and just people in the industry in general. And a lot of those conversations each resulted in a really small, you know, eureka or aha moment that we would then discuss internally and say, okay, well, maybe if we tweaked it like this, it would, it would work a little better and address those concerns. And after doing that for months, you, you know, the model is very different than what you started out with. And so through those conversations and through just small changes, we're now at a point where we feel really good about the financial model. The incentives are aligned. Everybody um, gets value from it. But that wasn't necessarily the case at the very beginning. So I get approached every once in a while from people who are either technical founders or non-technical founders who are just like looking to find someone who has an idea that they're passionate about. Do you think these people should be hanging around places where technical folks are, are working on just pure technical innovation and, and seeing if there's something there that they can grab and run with? Yeah, totally. I think, like we talked about before, I think you want to know what problem you want to solve first. I, I think it's dangerous sometimes to start with a product and then look to, like, you, you don't want to invent a problem for a product, right? But mm-hmm. I do think exposing yourself to those ideas and those that scientific process and all the, the really cool things that are happening can be really inspirational, can just help keep your mind sharp and it might spur thoughts that you could then look into the problem. So maybe you, you come across some technology that's really cool and, and you're interested in it. Then you start digging into what this might solve and make sure that there is a problem there to be solved. And then you could you know take that technology and run with it. So I have a question about brands. So you mentioned that you weren't focused on or weren't interested in investing in, it sounded like direct-to-consumer products, right? Correct. But I imagine that some of the things that you'll be building will eventually end up in the hands of consumers or will need to have a brand around them. How do you think about that early on as you're building the company? Like, are you, are you at all focused on building the brand of the, of the startup or is that, is that sort of takes a backseat to the logistics of the 
the innovation initially? It's not what we work on at first. Um, it's not to say that that's not important, but I think when we do build brands, we're basically building it so we can give a base to the technology that we're developing. So, you know, for example, if we were going to work on, let's say, one of those like monitoring and analytics platform for personalized nutrition, that's something that we would want consumers to adopt and use. And it's going to be a lot easier to start doing that and getting some early adopters and getting feedback and engage with consumers if there's a brand, right? Like that's just kind of part of building a business. So we would focus on it to that end. But there always has to be some underlying technology that we're really more concerned about than making the brand pretty and and lovable because that's more once we've proven it out, once we've gotten a prototype and we feel confident that our solution is the right solution and now we're going to, you know, blow this out into a big venture, that's when the real branding work comes into play. Cool. So I want to talk about the companies that you guys will bring in and work with and the early days of those companies. Um, so I think one of the most challenging things for entrepreneurs is prioritization early on. Mm-hmm. Um, are there ways that you help the companies that you work with prioritize or you can even like feel free to reach back into your the days of running your earlier companies? Like, How did you decide what to prioritize early on when you could be doing just about anything? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's all about what is going to make a difference a year from now, let's say. Or what is going to drive things forward? So what do you, so for us, very concretely, what we do and what we want to do is build ventures. So really everything that we do now has to be in service, has to move us one small step forward towards getting that done. And everything else is just noise. Hmm. Processes help a lot. So I think I mentioned before my, one of my partners is kind of a venture design specialist. He's worked at a bunch of larger innovation centers before Startle. So when he came on, he really brought a lot of specific structures with him that I is not my my nature necessarily. I could be a little chaotic at the beginning of things and tend to just like do everything all at once and in not a very organized fashion. And he, you know, put structure around our our thinking. He gave us basically, all right, here's your starting point and here's the output for every step and let's go through this in an orderly fashion. And what was interesting is it not only was more efficient than what I would have done on my own, it was also replicable. And so now we can just continue to go back that, to that again and again, every time we kind of start a process again, or start re-looking at, or start looking at a new initiative, we basically use those processes again. And we're never sitting there saying, okay, now what? Because we already know what we're going to do next. So it just it saves a ton of ton of time and energy. Very cool. So it's sort of like an internal product. Yeah. Exactly. I think that that's that's something that I certainly struggle with, and a lot of our founders have expressed that they struggle with is like you want to keep a long term view. You want to make sure that you're building something that you'll be or doing something you'll be happy you did a year from now. But everything is a trade off, and figuring out like what you can let slip in the near term for something bigger long term is always always a really tough conversation. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions on the startle stuff. I'm trying to figure out what the best one to ask is. So I, I actually heard you talk in an interview about processed plant-based proteins. Mm. And I thought this was I, th- I thought it was really interesting. And I'm just interested on your perspective on that that's obviously with beyond an impossible part of the industry that's growing really fast and has become very visible. Um, and I thought your your perspective on it was pretty interesting. So what do you think about the plant-based protein 
<laughs> shoot, I don't remember if this is a, a negative or positive thing. I'll, I'm not going to be negative. So <laughs> I, I do think that there is a place for them for sure. And I think that there are yep. good things that, I mean, there's a reason for, for plant-based proteins to exist in the world for sure. My concern with them on some level is the process, the level of processing. So they, so plant-based proteins in general are pretty ultra processed. And so Mm. to me, they're just junk food. I don't see it as health food. I don't think that eating a plant-based burger in, in this, like, you know, using pea protein isolate and things that were created in labs, I don't really think that that's super healthy for you. I think you, or it's, or it's no, it's no healthier than eating any other junk food. It's no worse either. It's just that hmm. that is what it is. And that's totally fine. I just don't view it as health food. Does that answer your question? <laughs> no, it really does. And um, and I'll, okay. I'll be happy to talk talk crap about them. Um, I mean, you don't have to. I think it's one of the most incredible marketing jobs I've ever seen that they are basically like the whole world has been telling us for two decades not to eat processed food. And the most mm-hmm. highly processed food you can find is now being marketed as the healthy alternative to meat. And I think there's there are two sides of it, of course. It's it's healthier for the world, the the globe, right. um, the climate, and that and that shouldn't be downplayed. Um, but I do think um, as I've started to get into the vegetarian world, just testing it out over the last couple of months, everyone's swapping these things out and saying like this is still a healthy meal. Um, I, I took a little issue with oh, it. Killed me. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's interesting actually because if you think about their the way their marketing or I guess the way their their story evolved is when they they launched. I believe they launched their products within some upscale restaurants and did some partnerships with some well regarded chefs, and that gave their products a lot of credibility and associated it with the other very high quality food coming out of that kitchen. Mm-hmm. So in people's minds at the very beginning, it was like, oh, well, this Impossible Burger was made by this chef and he makes great food. So this must be great food. Mm. I think that's actually that narrative has actually started to change a little bit in the public, or at least I've seen more people start talking about this, that this is not super high quality food for us or health food for us. And I don't, I can't tell if that's just because it's been on the market longer. So people have had more time to sit back and think about it and reflect on it, Mm -hmm. or because they've now expanded into more traditional fast food hmm. avenues. And so now it's just like the impossible Whopper, right? Or like it's, there's the impossible burger and then there's the Whopper and they're in the same place. And so of course they're the same type of food product. Huh. That's really interesting. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it shows you the importance of branding and marketing too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what your product is associated with. No, definitely. And, and one of the things that we talk about with our founders, and we actually just talked about it last week, in Tacklebox is the idea of like categorization where if you're bringing something new people have such limited brain power just in general like we can't we can't look at every single thing we th- see throughout the day and think critically about it if you see something and you say oh that's in the category of x it's new i've never seen it before but i'm going to dump it in this category where i already know that there are 25 different variables associated with that category and i just assign those variables to the new thing so like an example might be when they were cooked by a famous chef when the Impossible Burger was cooked by whoever. Somebody sees that and says, oh, that's lumped in this category of health. It's not in the category of meat, which means it's in the category of plant. And plant is good and high end is good. Uh And then when you get dumped into the fast food category, you're in the fast food character category. You get assigned all those variables. Exactly. 
Yeah. Psychology is fascinating. It's, it's really something like when we were starting Tacklebox, we had the decision of naming it an accelerator or a class. And if you call it a class versus an accelerator, it might not change the content at all, but it'll change the perception just like drastically. Mm-hmm. Uh, in full disclosure, actually, that the naming of Startle is something that we have struggled with, huh. um, continue to struggle with. Not not Startle innovation, but I mean what we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we have gone through many phrases of what we are exactly because it is a slightly new model. Now, lately, we've been calling ourselves a venture catalyst because we feel like that describes, you know, we're, we're providing we're, we're catalyzing things into businesses, but it's, you know, to your point of people only have so much uh, brain ability to understand new things. Sometimes we call it an incubator for ideas mm. because everybody knows what an incubator is, but we don't work with external startups. We work with the ideas themselves. So the, yeah, the whole concept of what you call, where, where you place your product, your company in a category, it's a difficult thing to do. It is. It is. And it's just top of mind. And one of the things I think about is like, we're all in this giant game of telephone where you're whispering one thing to somebody, they whisper it to the next person, whisper it to the next person. And your goal is to have that third person say the thing that you want them to say. And Mm -hmm. if you're inventing... It never happens. Yeah, exactly. If you're inventing a category. So I think about companies that have done it well. And you think about like, um, do you remember that really heavy blanket that was on Kickstarter? That Mm. like... It's called the gravity blanket, and it was like a twenty-pound blanket, and it raised five, six million dollars, something like that. And their pitch was, it's a heavy blanket that helps with sleep, sleep stress, and anxiety. And I just thought that was so brilliant because you're going to tell it to a bunch of people, and it's so simple and easy to remember. It's a heavy blanket; you can sort of like feel it, just feel it melting away the stress and the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And when you have a soundbite like that that's easy to share then you raise six million bucks on kickstarter because it's easy to tell people about um so yeah so i think like your goal with startle would be we need to have something that not necessarily the first person who hears about it but the person that they want to tell about it who would be a good fit for the for potentially working with you guys give them like arm them with the soundbite that is compelling to that person two degrees away exactly and i i don't think we figured that out yet but that is something we work on every every day it's preposterously hard to do Um, (laughs) Very cool. So the last thing I want to talk about today is kind of the elephant in the room, which is the we're we're recording this interview in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and the food industry is being hit incredibly hard by this. I'm just curious on your thoughts about it. I don't know if you spend too much time in that part of the industry these days, but I'm curious what you think the impact will be long term. Yeah, I so yes and no. I spend some time there, but not as much as other people do. I, as obviously the food industry has obviously been hit by personnel shortages. Like that's, that's a huge one um, across the supply chain. It's caused a lot of food businesses to have to pivot what their model is. So like restaurants, obviously having to move to just take out and delivery farmers and food distributors that used to sell to those restaurants now don't have restaurants to sell to. So they've had to pivot to direct to consumer. So you've seen like Baldor, which is a huge food service and restaurant distributor here is now doing home deliveries to customers. Wow. So I think that's been pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, long, I feel like, the, the, honestly, the long-term impacts, the biggest long-term impact, I think, is going to be on the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, people more, more versed in this area than, than me have started to question the financial viability of restaurants, mm-hmm. independent restaurants. And I kind of agree with that. Like, there are some fundamental problems there. But society is always going to want and need restaurants. So they will come back. I think the question is what form do they come back in? And and that I don't have an answer for. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's, 
are there opportunities and again this is this is a little bit kind of adjacent to your space rather than exactly where you live but restaurants are just so it, it was just amazing to me that restaurants overnight you know half of them closed and the margins are just so tight mm-hmm. is there is is there a world where restaurants margins are not that ridiculously slim <laughs> i i have no idea. I mean, the the piece that I have been thinking about a lot that's kind of related to this is the role that the online ordering platforms play or or what their model is right now. The the larger ones, they can take, you know, like a 30% commission of the orders that that go to the restaurants on their platform and a 30% commission to a restaurant is just crazy when yeah. their margins are so low already. So I I do feel like that actually might change like there might be different alternatives for restaurants to be able to sell their products to sell their their meals their dishes online or or for delivery in a way that's more financially sustainable Mm. to them but i I mean i think there's a lot of money that needs to be spent on labor and rent and food costs i would i can't see food costs going any lower because that means farmers are going to be paid even less for their products. Like I don't see how that's ever going to work. Mm-hmm. I feel like labor is not paid enough as it is. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to be a hard thing to figure out. Cool. So I've got a couple of last questions on just general startup advice. So you've obviously started a couple of companies, been really successful with them. The first question is kind of tied into the current state where everyone's kind of struggling with the mental side of things, particularly founders, particularly startups, venture back startups are having to make really difficult trade-offs, make make difficult decisions. How have you dealt with the mental side of being a founder? Of, I, I mean, you've now started three plus companies. That is overwhelming to even say. Um, how do, how do you how do you cope with the mental side of it? I feel a little guilty saying this when everybody else is so stressed out, but I don't get stressed very easily. Wow. <laughs> and I, I tend to have a feeling that everything is just going to work itself out, which is great in general. But when I don't have a boss or external deadlines, that means I actually have to work harder to create a sense of urgency for myself. Mm. Um, because otherwise I'll just sit here and be like, oh, everything's great. doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but of course, if I sit here and you know, feel good about life, nothing's going to move forward in, in mm-hmm. the way that it should. So my challenge might be the opposite of other people's challenges. And one way that I've, you know, informally dealt with that is by feeling a lot of social accountability, Hmm. where if I talk to people about what I'm doing, whether it's my friends or my family or people at a cocktail party or whatever, after I tell them what I'm doing, I really have this feeling like next time I talk to them, I need to have something new to say. Hmm. Otherwise, it's going to feel like I'm just talking about the same thing over and over again. Nothing is changing. And so that somehow helps me feel like, all right, someone's paying attention to what I'm doing. And so it actually matters. And like things need to move forward for those people, if that makes sense. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a a really interesting answer. I think a lot of people, I ask this question to most most founders and we get a whole range of of responses and you're on one side. And I think there are a lot of founders that are, that are able to cope with it naturally, just better um, like you are, which is, which is amazing. And, and probably why you've been able to stomach the amount of risk that you have and, and still been really successful. Yeah. And it's, it's tied to, into the, com- like being comfortable with uncertainty and, you know, having no clear path. And I feel like I actually enjoy that more if things feel very certain and set it doesn't feel interesting. It feels like, well, anyone could do it. So why am I doing this? It, hmm. you know, I think so. Just, I just happen to have a personality that is 
better suited to this career than than other careers, fortunately. Yeah. And that, that last thing you said actually makes a lot of sense for what you're doing now, where it's like you wouldn't do something that other people could do. And if you look at your background, it's like you create the perfect Venn diagram for Startle with your experience and the knowledge bases that you've built up. It's very unique to you. And you're sort of one of the very, very few people who'd be able to excel at it. So it makes sense to me. Thank you. So I guess the last question is is a more general one. Um, who do you think should start a company in, in, in a broader sense? <laughs> I think anybody should start a company if they have an idea that they're really passionate about and they feel like, obviously, you know, everyone's different. It doesn't have to be, nobody has to have my personality of, of not feeling stress and loving uncertainty, which is weird. But I think if you are close to that, you know, that's very helpful. So somebody like that would be a great founder. And I think, you you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a situation where it's like, all right, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow and start a company. Hmm. Um, I think what you do at Tacklebox, for example, is great. I think that there's the, this concept of you can be, I mean, people call it side hustles too, whatever. You can be entrepreneurial in spirit and pursue an idea in many, many different ways and structures and with different demands on your time. And I just, I think it's incredibly rewarding. So I would encourage almost anybody to do it, to be honest. Cool. I appreciate the tackle box plug. Anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for coming on. This was so great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Of course. That was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and maybe you find yourself with a little bit of extra time to work on that startup, the next Tacklebox Accelerator virtual program starts June 15th. You can apply at gettacklebox.com. Thank you again, and I hope everyone's staying safe.